When I first met Pastor Dave Hintz, there are a few things that I observed in him right away. First of all, we were drawn together because we were the same age and um, kind of cut from the same block of cheese, you might say. Right away, I noticed that he was a sober-minded man, very serious, and uh, always thinking, which uh, kind of threatens people sometimes. But I like that about Dave. That's good. As I observed him more, I learned that he's deeply concerned with his flock actually applying and practicing God's Word on a day-by-day basis in their lives. And within just a few conversations with Dave, I learned that he has a deep desire to see the lost come to Christ, to repent and obey the Lord as our Savior. If you know Dave at all, then you know that he loves the Lord Jesus, he, he loves God's Word, and he has a great, deep love for the lost as well. Dave is a college pastor here at Calvary Bible Church, and he also serves on the missions leadership team. If you would, please welcome with me Pastor David Hintz as he shares God's Word. Thank you, Ed. My... Power might be out. Oh, oh, here we go. Okay, well, that's why I'm not in sound ministry. So. Well, let me open up in a word of prayer before I get started. Uh, Father God, I do thank you for this privilege of addressing these brothers and sisters. And Lord, as we answered this very difficult and profound question, what about those who have never heard the gospel? I pray that you'll give me clarity of thought, mind, and understanding. And I just pray that these brothers and sisters might understand what your scriptures have to say about this issue and that it might motivate us to have a deeper passion for sharing the gospel to people not only in Burbank and in the greater L.A. area, but throughout the far reaches of the world. Lord, that we might be faithful to support missions, to preach to those people who have never heard. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before I was at Calvary Bible Church and before I went to the Master's Seminary in California, I was in Hungary for two years on a missions trip with a large campus ministry. And during that time, I had many opportunities to interact and share the gospel with Hungarians. And Hungarians are a very cynical and intelligent culture. And I remember having one conversation with this girl named Chila. Sheila had the gospel shared with her on multiple occasions. I believe she was a, a, an exchange student in the U.S., so she had some Christian friends who tried to evangelize her there as well. And in the midst of the conversation, she brought up this little anecdote, this joke, if you will, to, to send a very subtle message to myself. She talked to The joke goes like this. An Eskimo tribe in northern Alaska had been isolated from civilization for its entire existence. One day, two white missionaries infiltrated the tribe and began to learn and understand the language and then began to preach the gospel, how they must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, otherwise they will go to hell. Well, one of the thinking men of the tribe approached the missionaries and asked, so what happens to those people who have never heard the gospel? Well, the missionary said, I suppose that God gives them a chance, he's fair and gracious and merciful, and he lets him go to heaven. Then another Eskimo said, so why did he come here to begin with? 
Right? You understand the implication, right? If people are condemned by sharing the gospel, then shouldn't we just leave those animistic religions alone? Shouldn't we just leave them to their own natural revelation, understanding the religion that they have inherited from the forefathers, and just trust that God will be gracious to them and that they might understand the gospel on their own terms? See, this issue of what happens to those people who have never heard is something that troubles people time and time again. Numerous gospel conversations inevitably center around the justice of God. And is it fair that God will let people who have never heard the gospel go to hell? Many evangelists and many well-meaning Christians have come up with their own solutions to this problem. One is Billy Graham, the famous evangelist. He said the following, From the groups around the world, outside of the Christian groups, I think that everybody that loves or knows Christ, whether they are conscious of it or not, are members of the body of Christ. And I don't think that we are going to see a great sweeping revival that would turn the whole world to Christ at any time. I think James answered that. The Apostle James in the first council in Jerusalem, when he said that God's purpose for this age is to call out a people for his name. And that is what he is doing today. He is calling out a people for the world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world, the Buddhist world, or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they have been called by God. They may not know the name Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something they do not have, and they turn to the only light they have. And I think that they are saved and that they are going to be with us in heaven. In other words, according to Billy Graham, if you are a good Muslim, a good Buddhist, a good shamanist, that is all that you need, and you follow that faithfully and devoutly, they will be in heaven when we die. Now, with this whole issue comes a whole host of of questions, which we must analyze and, and answer. First of all, The first question is, how can we claim that God is fair and just if he condemns people who have never heard the gospel, right? The second question, what about those people who live in America and never hear the gospel? Do the same rules apply to them? I mean, how far do you take this? And number three, if those who never heard the gospel can be saved, how do we justify our missionary efforts? Millard Erickson, the renowned theologian, rightly states that next to the problem of evil, this is probably one of the most profound and difficult questions that undergraduates, or for that matter, any Christian, means to ask. And so our goal today is today we will attempt to answer this question that seems to have plagued our minds for centuries with, under biblical, theological, and presuppositional grounds so that we might have a greater understanding of God's plan for reaching the nations. That by answering this question, we might see the absolute necessity of conferences such as these, as men and women such as that have joined us here today, who need to go out and proclaim the gospel. And so what we're going to do is, in old-fashioned debate format, is we're going to look at the inclusivist position, we're going to look at their presuppositions, then we're going to go systematically, point by point, and refute that with biblical and theological grounds. Now, the inclusivist position goes as follows. This is from Everett Osborne. He says this, It is my contention that there is a possibility of salvation for the hidden peoples who, by the way of grace through faith, recognize their need and repent before God, seeking his forgiveness, just as the Israelites of the Old Testament brought sacrifices to God 
and through faith place themselves on his mercy so that they may have so so may the unreached heathen come to the one true God in repentance and faith and be forgiven of course they must have knowledge of the right God now on the surface this finds its appeal in the wideness of God's mercy When we share with non-Christians, God doesn't quite seem to be such an ogre in this case. He's very gracious. He's forgiving. You know, if people were to place themselves in God's position, they think that would be only fair because, after all, people have a right to hear the gospel. That is one of the underlying presuppositions. But they don't just rely on this. They appeal to five major arguments. The first one is just as God condemns people apart from special revelation, and I'll define that later, He can save them apart from special revelation. Number two, what about Acts 10.35, which states, But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Sounds pretty compelling. Number three, the Old Testament saints were were saved without knowledge of Jesus. So why is it that those, well, why couldn't those people who are in the New Testament or in this era be saved apart from the knowledge of Jesus as well? What about examples of Melchizedek, Job, Naaman, Jethro, and Rahab? Old Testament saints that were Christians, even though they were outside of Israel. And then number five, and very popular, is examples of tribes which seem to have the fear of God. Does that necessarily make them saved? And so, refuting this, we're going to go one by one, and we'll look at just a restrictivist position which is the belief that only those people who actually have professed and conscious faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. Now, the first argument... Oh, can you guys see? Oops, sorry. The first argument that we'll look at is just as God condemns people apart from special revelation, he can save them apart from special revelation. Now, there's two ten-cent terms here. The first one is general revelation. Now, general revelation is defined as a knowledge of God's existence, character, and moral law, which comes through creation to all humanity. For instance, when I have my breakfast, I have my friends, the squirrels, that live in the tree outside of our window. Can you guys see that? And from looking at that squirrel, I can concur that they didn't come from nowhere, that somehow, through their fathers and the squirrel's parents and their parents, that they had some sort of origin or some sort of beginning. That that squirrel, that tree, the earth, and the sky all point to a God, a creator. Now, in contrast to that, so you know, we can have an understanding that God has indeed created us. We have an understanding that perhaps he has made his power known, is evident to us, and that somehow we fall short of this perfect creator. Right? We have some sort of sense of having a conscience. For instance, how many tribes promote selfishness as a virtue? Right? How many tribes run from war? It is all part of an inner conscience that seems to permeate all people in a consciousness that comes through general revelation. Now, in contrast, you have special revelation. This refers to God's words addressed to specific people, such as the words of the Bible, the messages of the Old Testament prophets, and the very words of Jesus. In our case, it consists of what we know about God directly from the Bible. So you have general revelation, which is revelation apart from the Bible, apart from the scriptures, apart from God's spoken word. And then you have general revelation, which comes through nature. Now, obviously, the tribesmen don't have access to the Bible, but they do have access to general revelation. And that's where we find their argument. First of all, what they do is they'd survey. They say, if God's general revelation can condemn all mankind, why couldn't the same general revelation 
um, same general revelation save them. So they look at Romans 1 and 2 and say that general revelation would lead them to believe that they have all sinned against their creator and stand condemned before him. We see that argument. Then we go on to Romans 2, we learn, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the, have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. So they conclude that there is a creator, that he has somehow made them, he was made to worship them, but they are unable to worship him because they fall short of this moral law, which they rightly conclude comes from the creator. And then going to the third point, So they can make the connection that the Supreme Being also created this law within their hearts. Sensing their own helplessness, they throw themselves upon the mercy of God and he might grant them mercy. So you see that they repent, they turn to God from what they know. The only thing that's missing is the name of Jesus. Yet this is meant... Yeah, although as appealing as it sounds and as inviting as it sounds, because after all, who wants to believe that people who have never heard the gospel go to hell? We find that there are scriptural and theological reasons why we can't believe that. First of all, the scriptural reason. The Bible makes it clear that general... Okay. Thank you. Uh, The Bible makes it clear that general revelation is enough to testify about the existence of God, but it is not enough to impart the message of salvation. So if you all would turn to me, one of classic texts, turn with me to Romans 1, 18 through 21. Romans 1, 18 through 21. says the following... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So once you see, you see there that they are condemned because of the creation of the world. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. They know enough about the truth of God. They know that he is a creator. They know that he is their creator, yet they do not honor him as their creator. They turn away from him and their foolish hearts were darkened. General revelation is enough to condemn. It makes everybody responsible before God. It helps them to acknowledge their sinfulness and their wickedness. But it does not give the name Jesus Christ. It does not provide a way of salvation. And we see that Paul addresses this issue in Romans 10, 14 through 17. So let's all turn there. Romans 10, 14 to 17. See, in the context of the passage, Paul argues that though the Jews have some corpus of the law and some strong semblance of the right religion, they must call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is impossible apart from Jesus. So follow with me. Romans 10, 14 to 17. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? 
Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not heed the glad tidings, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Now we're going to make three observations about this passage. The first one is based off how... Am I getting that right? Good. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? This shows that the effective calling presupposes faith in the one called. This rules out the argument that one can call upon God savingly and not Christ. You can't believe in Jesus unless you believe who Jesus is, right? You can't say that you know Dave Hintz unless you've met Dave Hintz. This is a very simple argument. You can't have faith in Christ unless you call upon the name Jesus Christ. The second argument that Paul makes is how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? This demonstrates that faith presupposes a hearing of the gospel message. This rules out the possibility of being saved without Christ and the gospel. God uses missionaries. He uses the spoken word, whether in a tract, whether in a video. It is a message that is communicated audibly, orably, or audibly, I'm sorry, or orally, so that they might have comprehension. They might have an understanding of it. That is the means which God chooses to use. And then thirdly, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And so faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. This presupposes that the message of the gospel must be delivered in a verbal way. Let me get the sheet. Must be delivered in a verbal way, receiving the gospel apart from special revelation delivered by missionaries, etc., And this rules out the possibility of receiving the gospel apart from special revelation delivered by missionaries, literature, and etc. So from that passage alone, it would seem that the case is pretty clear. That you cannot believe in the gospel, you cannot believe in Jesus Christ, you cannot have salvation apart from hearing the words of the gospel. Now some people will go ahead and refute and say, well, wait a second, Dave, if you look on at the next verse... If you look on at verse, uh, hold on, verse 18, where Paul writes, But I say surely that they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. The voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What they would say is this comes from Psalm 19. And this comes, and Psalm 19 is divided into two sections. One that talks about the word of God and the revelation of God revealed through nature, revealed through general revelation. And the second part, through the testimony of the law, through special revelation. And they'd say, notice that Paul quotes the part that talks about general revelation. Yeah, the messenger is sent out, but it is in the form of general revelation. Now, there's two problems with this. Number one, Paul uses this as an analogy of the spread of the gospel. Just like the lines of the sun penetrate through the clouds, so does the gospel spread throughout all the earth. It is active, it is spreading fast, and when you look at how fast the gospel spread throughout the Mediterranean, it is easy to see how that analogy is very potent. Secondly, and most obviously, is Paul wasn't a moron. It would contradict his previous message. It would not make sense for him to give a message about how you must hear the gospel and the message of a preacher of Christ and then turn around and say it's totally unnecessary because the skies and the earth all testify about it anyway. And so we see that in Paul's case, that is clearly not the case. 
that you must hear the gospel. Then, to reinforce this, we see it in Acts 4.12. If you all want to turn there. Acts 4.12, where Peter states, and there is a salvation, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So in this passage, once again, you must believe in the name Jesus Christ. Not in some abstract concept of a supreme being that you throw your mercy upon, but explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is necessary. So that moves, let's move on to the second argument. What about Acts 10.35, which states, But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Well, first do, let's all turn to Acts while we're there. Acts chapter 10. Now, if this verse was taken alone, it opens up the floodgates of possibility. That there is somebody in every nation, in every tribe, tongue, and nation that believes in God, that has a fear of the Lord. Now, this is spoken in the context of uh, the conversion of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He was described as a devout man who feared God, who had one favor with the Jews, prayed continually and gave alms. I mean, one might say that clearly this is somebody who did fear God. However, in a vision from an angel, he was told that he needed to send for Peter. And we learn three things from this narrative. First of all, one, in Acts 11.14, we find out that the angel told him, who will bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved. It's in the future tense. He was not saved before he heard that message. He had to hear the message. And once he heard that, salvation was afforded to him. Secondly, in the verse following Acts 10.35, we see that Peter proclaims the name of Christ. That he proclaims, he says, Now I know that every man, all men everywhere fear him in every nation. And then he proclaims the gospel message. He wasn't sufficient to say, Wow, you fear the Lord, praise the Lord, baptize, that's it. And then thirdly, we must remember that pre-Christians are, are not Christians. Now, there are modern-day Corneliuses all over the place. There are people who have a fear of the Lord, who are very drawn to, to Christianity. They're like ripe fruit that you only have to shake the tree and they all fall off. But we should not believe that those people are Christians because they were so ripe. They were ripe Christians that God, in His sovereign grace, placed missionaries in the presence of and allowed them to share the gospel, and they were ripe for the picking. And that's encouraging. It's encouraging to know that there's Corneliuses out there, that all that is needed is somebody to go there to share the gospel because God has so prepared their hearts. Then we go on to the, the third argument. Because what about the Old Testament saints? They were saved without the knowledge of Jesus. This is a very appealing, appealing argument because obviously what happened you know, to the Old Testament saints, we would be tempted to say that the same thing is happening to the heathen today. But it misses the boat on several reasons. First of all, granted the Old Testament saints might have been saved without the knowledge of Jesus, but they were not saved without special revelation. They had the law. They had all the prophecies of the Messiah. They had the sacrificial system that pointed to the coming of Christ. It was just a matter of filling in the name, but they had specific revelation of who Christ was. Further, there is a tremendous difference between the Old Testament saints and the unreached heathen. 
as far as they were in the covenant community. They were part of the old covenant. As Mark Tatlock mentioned yesterday, they were a kingdom of priests. God revealed himself to them so that he might use them to reconcile the world to himself. Then finally, that we are in the church age, and we go to Ephesians 3, 4, and 6. It says this, And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, and it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers in the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. And that mystery specifically is the body of Christ. Before Christ, God chose to operate through the Old Testament, through the nation of Israel, that they were to be a magnet, if you will, that would draw all nations to Israel. Israel would then impart the knowledge of the law, knowledge of the Holy God, convert them, and do what Jonah did, what we learned about last night, to lead them to knowledge of Jehovah, to Yahweh. But in the New Testament, the Old Covenant was done away with, and God instituted a new one and began to operate through means of the church, that the church was to go out and to share the gospel, and that Jews and Gentiles were all to be put into the same system. So it doesn't make sense that we have this expanding church, but then we also have this body of primitive, primal believers over here that's also growing as well, where there's a separate entity that God is sanctioning to bring people to his name. The purpose of the church is God wants to unite people from every tribe, tongue, and nation under one common head. They're to be baptized in Christ or to be a part of the body of Christ. So it doesn't make sense to have a separate entity, a separate primitive church of unbelievers who have never heard the gospel. God intends to reconcile through Jesus Christ. And then finally... What about, or fourthly, what about the examples of Melchizedek, Job, Naaman, Jethro, and Rahab? Weren't these people saved apart from special revelation? Well, I'd say many of them did have special revelation. Job, for instance, had an appearance of God in a whirlwind speak to him. Right? He had intimate knowledge of God through that way. Rahab had contact with the spies. Naaman had contact with the Old Testament saints of Israel. We see that all of these people in some way did have some contact. Secondly, there's no reason to believe that just because it's not recorded that they didn't have any special interaction with God that it doesn't exist. Finally, we see that there are no New Testament examples. If you look throughout the New Testament, you will not find one example of one person who was saved apart from the knowledge of Christ. It just does not exist. So on the biblical basis, we see that their inclusivist restriction is based on nothing more than just speculation. And that leads us to the fifth point that they bring. What about the examples of tribes who seem to have the fear of God? And this seems to be the most popular means of appeal. Consider this. Anthropological studies have revealed that the Yoruba people of Nigeria worship a supreme being whom they call Aludamar, Aludamar is known as the Creator, the Most High, the King who dwells in the heavens. He possesses all superlative attributes, executes judgments, is a discerner of hearts, who sees both the inside and the outside of man. And he alone can accomplish his work merely by speaking. Sounds all familiar, doesn't it? Aludamar is the all-powerful Creator who deserves to be worshipped by mankind. 
He cannot be represented by images, but he can be approached as a father. It is known that the Aruba traditions about Aludamar originated. Uh, it is not known when the Aruba traditions about Aludamar originated, but research has shown that the high god of the Aruba was not a later insertion through contact with Western Christianity. So what do you say about this tribe? Could it be that they have some knowledge and some fear of the Lord? That God somehow revealed himself through them? Well, there's a problem here. Let's say we were to discover a tribe in Mozambique. We discover that they worship a supreme being. They only worship one God, that he is holy, and that this God sent his son, Jesus, who died on, the, on a wooden stake so that he might take away our wrongdoings. Now, you would be tempted to say, these people are definitely saved. Otherwise, how else could they know these things? But let's say you were to do some research and you found out that this tribe was infiltrated by Mormon missionaries 150 years earlier. It would change your perspective, right? See, it is very tempting to look at the overlap between the tribe's beliefs and Christian doctrine and look at what is the same as opposed to what is different. But if you were to look at the Jehovah Witnesses, if you were to look at the Mormon missionaries, they are probably more alike to biblical Christianity than dislike, yet it is that 5% deviation that condemns them. We must exercise discernment and make sure that we are not just well-meaning missionaries who tend to look for the wideness of God's mercy and apply attributes of God and attributes of Christianity to their religion that is not there. Secondly, this problem allows you know, for the lost girl in Utah. In what, other words, what do we, where do we draw the line? Now, these people in Africa have never heard the gospel. What about those people who are steeped in Mormonism who never heard the gospel? Where do you draw the line? How far do you include? Inevitably, this position will lead to inclusivism of all sorts. In a sense, these well-meaning missionaries begin to undermine the very purpose of doing evangelization. Missions work becomes totally unnecessary if this view is allowed to take root. So in conclusion, I want to bring up just some analysis, final analysis of this. One, they allow the love of God to dominate his other attributes. It's interesting to note that many of the people who hold this position also deny the reality of eternal conscience punishment. They don't believe in hell because they want to believe the best in God, but in the end, they are misconstruing the God of the Bible. Why is God's love more important than his righteousness? Why is it that we assume that everybody has the right to go to heaven? Isn't the more accurate perception, if Jesus never came to earth, would God be just in sending all of us to hell? Just because he presented one way out doesn't mean that everybody is mandated or has some sort of constitutional right to have it. God is just. He's also fair, but he's also loving. And he wants to be approached by his means. Thirdly, secondly, they wrongly pursue, perceive the justice of God. It is completely fair for God to send people to hell because after all, we deserve it. People don't go to hell because they reject the gospel. People go to hell because of their wanton rebellion against their creator. Thirdly, they do not sufficiently take into account the sovereignty of God. 
once again we see that people who who argue this position also are what we'd call open theist. They are people who believe that God doesn't know the future, that man has free will, and to justify his free will, to justify the fact that you know, man can do whatever he wants, that God would in no way send people to hell, it's basically their choice, they would say that God doesn't know the future. See, what they don't take into account is the fact that God is sovereign. If people are truly seeking the Lord, God can send missionaries. He created the world in six days. He can get missionaries here in Jaya. If there's somebody who's truly seeking the Lord, somebody who's like a Cornelius, God will provide the provision to make sure that the spoken word of the gospel will be given to them. Now this might seem to be a, a nice academic exercise, but there's four crucial applications I really want to camp out on. First of all, well-intentioned theology can be condemning. Well-intentioned God theology can be condemning. It's much like the doctor who loves his patient so much that every single patient gets a perfect diagnosis. You have people with cancer. You have people who find out that they need a heart transplant, but he tells them not to worry about it. All the while, he lets them die prematurely because he didn't take the radical action necessary to save their lives. If we just say that these people are saved and we try to vindicate God to the unbelievers, what we do is we soften the church's resolve to evangelize the lost. We're not scoring any points by patting people on the back on the way to hell. We must proclaim the gospel so that they might be rescued from God's wrath for eternity. Secondly, we need to share our faith with the unreached heathen in Burbank. I mean, it's one thing to talk about those people who never heard very smugly, but what are we doing about it? There are people in Burbank who have no clear understanding of the gospel. They may hear the name Jesus, but their Jesus is some sort of New Age mystic, or their Jesus is somebody who is not God. Understanding that people cannot be saved apart from hearing the gospel must increase our resolve to share the gospel, starting here, then to L.A., then to the ends of the world. It's not like we just make some sort of jump where we're all of a sudden going to be a missionary and we're going to share with a heathen over there, but we have no heart or compassion for the people, our friends or neighbors in Burbank. Number three, reaching the unreached heathen worldwide needs to be a priority. It is a priority for God and any thinking Christian who is rejoicing over the fact that somebody shared the gospel with them, it only makes sense that your heart would motivate you, that your conscience would be pricked, that you would want to see other people come to Christ in unknown lands, to see people rise out of squalor and poverty, to have the hope of heaven through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. You may not be the ones who go there, but you do know people who do that. You You can pray for people. You can get involved in the missions leadership team. You can go on mission trips yourself, and you can also give. There's a wealth of opportunity to share the gospel, but it all starts with the heart. And then four, our heart should ache at the thought of billions of people going to hell who have never heard the gospel. I'm not sure if sure about you, but often I am very troubled by the hardness of my own heart. I have a tendency to look down on other Christians, have a condescending attitude, at different people and the sinful things that they do? Well, how often do you just walk down the street and look people in the face and just wonder 
If they were to die right now, where would they go? Have you ever thought about the torments of hell, what it's like to be in the lake of fire forever, to forever be in pain with no hope of relief, to be separated from our loving God, to be under His wrath forever, to be in absolute loneliness and darkness for all times? That thought should shudder, cause us to shudder. And if all of us found some sort of portal where we were able to step into hell for one minute and then step out, we would forever be changed. Yeah, we don't think about hell. It's one of those doctrines that we tend to sweep under our conscience, sweep under the carpet of our conscience, so that we don't ponder the tragedy of what people are doing, because it has far-reaching impact and results. Jesus talked about hell more than heaven. I think there's a reason for that. It is to remind us of God's justice and the need to be heralds, that he is going to come, he's going to come back, and he's going to execute his justice. And he is fair and gracious to us, and that should motivate us to tell other people as well. I remember uh, hearing a story of this man named Lotzi in Hungary. When the Iron Curtain was still up, several people from the missions organization that I went over with Hungary the first time would go around this place called Lake Balaton and share with college students and talk to them about Jesus Christ. And it was interesting. They came across this young man named Lotzi, a very intelligent college student who was going to school in Budapest. And when they shared the gospel, he was just enraptured by the message. They just spent hours talking through and combing each point of the doctrine. And when he finally realized that he must believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved, his mind immediately thought to the people in the far-off places of the world and said, instead of saying that God is not fair for condemning those people, He said, this presents a very urgent crisis. Somebody needs to tell them. And as we think about this whole issue of what happens to those people who never heard, this is not something that so we we can win a debate. It should move us to, to tender compassion towards those souls and give us all the more resolve to proclaim our faith, to pray for the lost, and to trust that one day that we'll be worshiping with those dear brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation in heaven for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you uh, just for the study. And it is, it is so clear, Lord, that you have chosen your means of the proclamation of the gospel. And Lord, we submit ourselves to that means and we ask that you'll aid and assist us in making sure that your word and your message goes to the billions of people who never heard. We plead for their souls, Lord. We ask that you will rescue them. And Lord, we, we pray that you will work within our lives that we will be find and discover new ways that we can be a part of this church movement to take the gospel to the lost. In the meantime, we thank you for the wonderful testimony of all these missionaries here. Lord, what a, what a privilege it is to send out these brothers and sisters from our church. And we pray that they were encouraged by this time that they were spurred on to more love and good deeds, and that they might go back into the trenches and keep proclaiming your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.